Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and we're going to get started today after just a few brief disclaimers. First of all, the show might offend you. If you're easily offended, please turn the show off and spare me the negative reviews on the podcast store, or the iTunes store, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, because you won't like the show. This is your first and final warning. Second, I use advertisements in this show that I do not own the rights to. They are the creative property of Rockstar Games. That is all. My family! He's got a gun! Someone's breaking into your home. What do you do? Call 911? It takes the police an average of 35 minutes to respond to a 911 call. In that time, a burglar could have his way with your wife, smoke a cigarette, flip her over and go in for seconds. Don't let the worst happen to you. It is vital that you protect yourself. Do it the patriotic way. That's right! Ammunition has all the equipment you need to protect your family from the evils of a liberal society. Fixed, mounted, and shoulder-held submachine guns, mortars, surface-to-air and all manner of heat-seeking missiles, and just in to celebrate the Gulf War, pink and blue tracer bullets so you can protect your family in the dark. Start the week off right on Make My Day Mondays with two-for-one on maim, strafe, and kill landmines. Got Gulf War syndrome? Get ten bucks off all machine gun rentals. Hey, if you love your family, Prove it with a gun. Ammunition. Protecting your rights. Coming soon to the Los Santos Convention Center, it's Mike Andrews. Poor people, stop complaining. Start living. You can't take the money with you when you die. Even I can't. He's changed millions of lives with his book, Rags Are Riches. This all-day seminar features workshops on cooking potatoes, dumpster diving, huffing paint, bathing alternatives, and pharmaceutical baking. Instead of complaining about being poor, lady, enjoy it. Mike, I can't feed my kids, and the rents do. Whoa, bitch, settle it down. Are you saying this ain't the greatest country in the world? Wait, hold on, hold on, wait, everyone. USA, USA, USA. Favorite programs such as There's No Rich People, The Rich Are Miserable, Play Harmonica, and Expect Less, Achieve More. See Mike Andrews live for only $200, payable in 10 installments. Reserve your seat today. Welcome back to another episode of the Halloween special, Spooky Fans. As I said earlier, I'm your host and narrator, Springheel Jack, and today's first story is called The Last Bus. Written by one of my new favorite internet authors, Wound Licker. Uh, hopefully you've liked his stories, because uh, they've been the focal point of most of my episodes for most of this week. I enjoy them. Hope you do, too. The first time I caught the night bus was pure chance. I'd heard the legends, of course. We all had. Urban legends are a big thing where I live. I suspect it's partly because I hail from an unremarkable and frankly dull provincial town that has little else going for it. Kids growing up around here don't have much to do, and so their imaginations tend to run wild, with escape escapism being all the rage. My friends and I were obsessed with urban legends during our formative years, gobbling up tales whispered in the playgrounds and later posted by anonymous people on online forums. We found the legends both frightening and exhilarating, bringing excitement to otherwise boring lives. It would be fair to say that I was quite naive back then, some of my friends were more cynical, but I truly believed them all. The vanishing hitchhiker of Spencer Street, the Southside Troll Man, and the White Lady of Croft Manor were a few of my favorites. 
My friends and I took on the role of amateur sleuths, investigating every site and searching for any evidence of these legendary cryptids and otherworldly entities. To my extreme disappointment, we found nothing. No ghouls or, or ghosts, uh, no monsters, or no sign of anything out of the ordinary. Eventually, I too became cynical, concluding that all such le legends were just childish nonsense, and that I was wasting my time in pursuing them. The last bus was another of the local myths that I'd heard about growing up and assumed it was bullshit like the others, but now I know better. Officially, the last bus out of the city center leaves at a quarter to midnight from the bus depot on High Street. That's the bus which sensible people catch if they want to get home safely after a night out on the town. The pubs and clubs close at 1 a.m. and the crowds of drunken revelers pile onto the streets, fighting over taxis, queuing up for late-night kebabs, attempting a last-minute hookup, or calling, calling up friends in search of all-night all, all house parties. It's the same chaotic scene every Friday and Saturday night. Usually, there are a couple of punch-ups and a few people who will injure themselves by falling over drunk onto the pavement. It's all depressingly predictable. The police will be called out, as will the ambulance crews, and eventually the crowds will disperse, as an eerie silence returns to the darkened streets. Then we enter the twilight hours, when all sensible and law-abiding citizens are at home, safely tucked up in their beds. After hours, the streets are left to the vulnerable, like the homeless with nowhere else to go, forced to seek shelter and shop door fronts, wrapping their cold bodies in old sleeping bags and praying that they make it through the night. And then there are the predators, the ones your mother warned you about, the gangs of thugs who patrol the, th who patrol the streets. Their blood up as they search for a victim to violently attack, and the predatory men who lurk in the shadows, watching for, for vulnerable women who they can prey upon. On a Monday morning, you'll read the stories in the local newspapers. The homeless man beaten to a pulp, the young girl sexually assaulted in a back alley. Police will open investigations and appeal for witnesses. Sometimes they'll catch the perpetrators, other times they won't. You'll have sympathy for the victims, but you'll secretly feel relieved that it didn't happen to you or someone you know. But in these cases, the culprits are human monsters made of flesh and bone and not otherworldly fiends I tried to chase as a young boy. During my cynical years, I believed these human predators were the worst thing out there, and they owned the twilight hours before the dawn. But I was wrong, and I now know the truth. There are far worse things that lurk in the shadows. The first occasion I caught the night bus came during a difficult time for me. I'd just turned 21 and had split up with my girlfriend of two years. Looking back, I now see how the breakup was the best thing for both of us, but at the time I was devastated and angry. My friend had taken me for a night out on the town in the hope it would cheer me up. It was a nice idea, but unfortunately it didn't work out that way. I drank way too much, starting on the beers and moving on to shots of hard liquor. We went to a club where I made several embarrassing and unsuccessful attempts to hook up with strangers. And as if that wasn't bad enough, I then started a fight with my best friend, throwing a punch at him be before I got thrown out of the club by the doorman and foolishly deciding to walk the streets alone in a drunken stupor. Somehow I managed to avoid getting beaten up or falling on my face and cracking my head open on the pavement. Instead, I managed to stagger to a bus shelter, not realizing in my inebriated state that the official bus service had finished for the night already and there wouldn't be another one due until the morning. I remember laying down to rest on the bench and I must have passed out because I woke up several hours later and saw the streets were empty. I was all alone, or at least so I thought, 
My heart almost jumped out of my chest when I saw the old bus driving down the streets toward me, emitting black smoke from its exhaust pipe as it came, its noisy engine interrupting the previous quiet. The vehicle was partially illuminated by the streetlights, although I noted with some concern how the lamps flickered as the bus drove by them. The vehicle looked like a throwback from the 1960s, the kind of ancient tin can on wheels you'd expect to see at a classic car show. Unlike the modern vehicles we're used to, those that glide along the streets quietly, this old rust bucket rattled along, noisily looking as if it could break down at any moment. But instead it kept coming, driving down the empty road and coming closer to my shelter. I noted how there were no emblems or motifs painted on the side of the bus and no destination name was shown above it on the front wide screen. The vehicle's exterior was painted all black, and even the windows were tinted, meaning I could not see who or what was inside. I felt a cold chill run down my spine as I recalled the details I'd heard about the last bus legend. One of those I'd read and studied during my youth. The vehicle I was seeing before me matched the description of the coach in the stories, the phantom bus that appears on an abandoned street in the early hours, offering lifts to the weary and needy. I came close to panic in that moment, wondering whether I was dreaming or suffering from a paranoid delusion. I'd spent so much of my youth chasing legends, searching for any evidence that could prove the existence of something outside of our own reality. But now that the truth was staring me in the face, a big part of me wanted to turn tail and run. But I didn't. I don't know whether I was frozen to the spot with fear or if my curiosity got the better of me, but I held my ground and waited for the bus to come to me. I stood up on my shaking feet as the coach pulled in beside my shelter, and despite the amount of alcohol I'd consumed, I suddenly felt quite sober. It seemed to take forever for the vehicle to park, and for the creaking old door to swing open. When it did, I was confronted by a friendly middle-aged man wearing a neat blue uniform while he sat behind the wheel, driving his bus to an unspecified location. He smiled down at me, his eyes twinkling, in an amicable and welcoming fashion, then he opened his mouth and spoke in a soft, almost fatherly tone of voice, saying, Good evening, my friend. Are you coming on board? I'd heard about the enigmatic driver before, but nevertheless his appearance and whole demeanor took me off guard. I struggled to find the words to respond, stuttering my way through my reply. Where... where will you take me? I inquired nervously. Home, the driver responded with a reassuring smile. I'll take you home, eventually. Life isn't about the, about the destination, it's about the journey. Sometimes you need to take a leap of faith. So what do you say, young friend? Will you ride with us? I'll admit to being scared in that moment, terrified in fact. Somehow I realized how important this was, how the decision I made right then could shape the rest of my life. I didn't know what exactly would await me if I got on board, but I had a good idea and it was terrifying. But if I walked away, I would never discover the truth. And so I took a deep breath, plucked up my courage and stepped onto the bus, seeing the driver smile as the door shut firmly behind me. When I saw the bus driver up close, I sensed something sinister about him and I instantly started regretting my decision, but by then it was already too late. This was the first time I rode the night bus. Over the years, I've been on it three times in total, living to tell the tale on each occasion. Catching the Phantom Bus isn't as easy as you would imagine. There's no set of rules that you can follow and no set time or location. I don't know whether it's sheer chance or if the bus itself chooses its passengers. I have, however, been able to piece together common threads using both my own experiences and those of others who have made the journey.
We have an online forum which we use to tell our stories and exchange information. It's an issue of safety as much as anything else. The night bus can be lethal if you don't keep your wits about you. Having accumulated this knowledge over the last number of years, I will now share it with you here. Once you step on board the night bus, you'll see rows of hard-backed seats stretching back to the rear of the vehicle's interior. There's nothing unusual about this, at least not at first glance. You'll see other passengers too, but you mustn't engage with them at this point, and don't look them in the eye. Take a seat on an empty bench somewhere towards the front of the bus. It doesn't really matter where exactly, they will, they will come to you in their own time. The journey itself can last for hours, or at least that's what it seems like when you're on board. You can see out the windows from the inside and look upon the scenery such as it is. Initially, you'll see familiar sights, city center streets, buildings, and businesses that you'll recognize. Nevertheless, you'll soon realize that something isn't quite right with the scene. The streets will be totally abandoned, with no traffic or pedestrians anywhere to be seen. There won't be any businesses open or lights emanating from anywhere along the road. The further you drive out of the city center, the more bizarre the sights you will encounter. Soon, the tidy streets and well-maintained buildings will give way to urban decay, crumbling structures and ruins like those of a lost city forgotten by time. Eventually, the bus will leave the city behind and enter what appears to be a dense forest. The narrow road you will follow will be shrouded in darkness, with the only illumination coming from the vehicle's bright headlights. If you glance into the woods on either side of the road, you will occasionally catch a glimpse of shadows moving behind the tree line, strange figures and unidentified animals with glowing red eyes glaring through the darkness. You'll see these unnerving creatures for only the briefest of seconds as the bus drives through and then they'll be gone. At first you'll think it's just your fertile imagination playing tricks on you, but deep down you'll know that there is something evil lurking in those woods. By this point in the journey, it should become clear that you're no longer in the realm of the living. I don't know where the bus takes you, but I do know it's not wise to stare out the windows for too long. What lurks out there can drive you mad. And besides, your focus should be on those inside the bus as they pose the more immediate threat. My fellow online sleuths and I think of the passengers as lost souls. It seems certain that they are no longer part of the world of the living. There's something lacking in them, an important piece that's missing. Once you talk to them, and they will engage with you whether you want them to or not, you'll see the sadness in their empty, dead eyes. They want to latch on to you because you have what they want, which is life. That's why it's so important that you follow the rules. Don't let them get inside of your head, whatever you do. There are six entities you're likely to encounter once you set foot on the bus, all of whom have made their own unique all of them have their own unique traits and tricks which they'll attempt to use against you. Based on the shared experiences of our forum members, I have pieced together a description of each one of these otherworldly entities. First, there's the driver, whose physical description I've already covered. The driver's first job is to get you on board, and that's why he'll appear to be so friendly and welcoming, enticing you to take a ride on his bus. However, once the door shuts behind you and the bus starts moving, you'll see the driver's smile falter ever so slightly as he breaks eye contact and focuses on the road. Despite this, the driver is a benign figure who plays a small but important role in the events which follow. His job from this point onward is simply to drive. And he does keep his promise to you. He will bring you home eventually, assuming you don't fall foul of any of the spirits during the drive. Like I said, the journey will seem to last for hours, but when he drops you off on your home street, back in our realm... No time will have passed whatsoever. 
He lets you off, smiling again and saying, Have a nice evening. Hope to see you again soon. And you'll be left standing on the pavement outside your home, bewildered and still in a state of shocked disbelief as you watch the phantom bus driver down the road before it inexplicably vanishes at the end of your street. After the driver, the first passenger you're likely to notice is the party girl. This is an attractive young woman who appears to be in her early to mid-twenties. Her physical appearance will change on each occasion. Sometimes her hair will be brunette and other times blonde. Likewise, her skin complexion can be pale or dark depending upon the beholder. What's consistent is how she's made up and dressed, donning a cocktail dress and high heels and carrying a designer handbag. Her fragrance is sweet and enticing, but you also notice a hint of alcohol on her breath. You'll note how her mascara has run, indicating that she's been crying. Or sucking dick. Nevertheless, there's something in her deep and expressive eyes which will draw you in, an inner beauty and vulnerability that plays on your emotions. It's worth noting that you will be attracted to the young woman in spite of your gender or usual sexual preference. You'll be unable to take your eyes off her and will feel compelled to take a seat close to her. The party girl will engage you during the early stages of the journey, distracting you from the bizarre sights outside the bus's windows. At first, she'll be flirtatious and fun, asking you about yourself and talking about her night out, but soon the conversation will take on a darker tone, as the girl tells you about a tragic event from her past. Childhood abuse, a violent ex-partner, or the death of a loved one. The story will vary each time, but will always be one of sadness and suffering. Your heart will go out to her, and you're, even if you're usually not an empathetic person. Once she's told you her woeful tale, the young woman will ask you to go home with her to give her some comfort. You will be tempted, but under no circumstances should you agree to go with her. It's critical that you remember what she is, and what she really wants from you. My advice is to politely decline her offer without causing her undue suffering. The party girl may be a lost soul, but by all accounts she still feels human emotions. She won't be angry when you reject her, but instead will sob softly into her hands. You'll feel guilty, of course, but you must move on and switch seats, leaving the poor girl to her misery. The next passenger you'll encounter sits a couple of rows behind the party girl. We call her the OAP, or the pensioner. She's an elderly woman, probably in her 80s, her white hair and curls, wearing a shawl and a heavy winter coat, and with a shopping cart on wheels parked underneath her seat. Her face is wrinkled, and the perfume she wears is quite overbearing. But the pensioner has kind eyes and a sweet motherly smile. She'll remind you of an elderly relative, like a grandma or a great aunt, and you will feel an affection towards her. A woman of her age and appearance is the last person you'd expect to find riding the night bus during the early hours of the morning. And yet here she is, another lost soul, trapped on a journey that never ends. The pensioner will speak with you in a kindly, wholesome fashion, asking about your life and your family while also entertaining you with anecdotes from her long and interesting life. You truly will feel at ease talking with her, but you mustn't forget what she really is. The conversation will end with the woman asking you to accompany her home to help her with her shopping or something like that. She'll offer to prepare you something to eat, your favorite meal or snack, whatever that may be, and she'll offer to put you up for the night. Again, you'll be tempted, but you must say no. On this occasion, it doesn't actually matter how politely you refuse her offer. Whatever you say or do, she will react with absolute fury, screaming every obscenity under the sun as her face screws up with anger. It's the last thing you would expect from a seemingly sweet old lady, but this is exactly what will happen. As soon as she launches into her hateful tirade, you should leave your seat and move further down the bus, and you would be wise not to engage with her again for the rest of the journey. The next passenger you'll meet 
is a scruffy middle-aged man known as the Drunk. He sits close to the back of the bus and is perhaps the type you would expect to find on a late-night service. I wouldn't recommend sitting too close to the Drunk if he, if only because he smells pretty bad, his breath stinking of alcohol and cigarettes. You'll note how his old clothes are soiled and torn and his unkempt beard will be badly matted. You probably won't want to engage with him, but the drunkard will begin a conversation with you regardless. And against your better judgment, you'll get drawn in. The drunkard will, drunkard will turn out to be surprisingly intelligent and insightful, seeking to educate you on such matters as religion, philosophy, and scientific theory. He'll tell you a story in the form of a parable or a fable with a dark twist on it. When I first met the drunk, he recounted to me the tale of the frog and the scorpion, one that demonstrates the cruel and destructive nature of life. Next, he'll remove a silver hip flask from his inside jacket pocket and offer you a drink. Regardless of your choice on alcohol, you'll be tempted to take a sip. The drink will smell sweet and inviting, but of course you must refuse him. After you turn down the drink, the drunk will shoot you an angry look before shaking his head and saying, You're a damn fool. A stupid little child. You don't have any idea what you're dealing with. This is your cue to move on. Now you'll notice how the first three passengers are trying to draw you in, using whatever charm or supernatural powers they have at their disposal. Their ultimate goal is to trick you into leaving the bus. Needless to say, you must not do this, not if you want to make it home. Nobody knows what exactly happens to those who fall into one of their traps. We do know that several members of our forum have vanished without a trace over the years, and my city has a long history of unexplained disappearances. The fourth passenger is different from the rest, however. He's a young male who sits on the back row while listening to headphones. Linked up to an 80s-style Walkman. We call him Headphones Guy. And it seems all he does is listen to music. His eyes close as he taps his foot to the beat. The Headphones Guy will not attempt to engage with you or even acknowledge your presence. That's not to say he isn't dangerous, however. There was a member of our group who had a run-in with the guy. To be fair, it wasn't unprovoked. Feeling bold, my friend got right up to the passenger's face, waving his hands and clicking his fingers in an attempt to gain the spirit's attention. When this failed, he foolishly grabbed the guy's headphones, physically pulling him off his head. Predictably, though, headphones guy didn't react well to this violation. In an instant, he jumped up from his chair, lashed out with his fists, and knocked his assailant down with one punch. My friend remembers a sharp, intense pain in the back of his head before he blacked out. The next thing he remembered is waking up in his own bed the next morning with a broken nose and a nasty cut on the back of his head. He also found a note in his jeans pocket, crudely written on the back of an old bus ticket in what looked like dried blood, and it read, Do that again and I'll rip your fucking head off. Unsurprisingly, my friend never rode the night bus again. I don't know what the headphones guy's deal is, but my advice is to leave him well alone. So at this point, you're probably wondering why one would wish to catch the night bus at all, given how you'll be transported to a terrifying alternative reality and encounter otherworldly spirits who wish to trap you there. Well, the short answer is that no sane person would, bar a handful of crazed urban adventurers and amateur paranormal investigators such as myself. Most of those who have boarded the Phantom Coach have done so by accident, not realizing what they're getting themselves into until it was too late. And most of those who ride the bus have no inclination to do so again. But those of us who do seek out the Phantom Coach for a second, third, or in my case, fourth occasion, we have our reasons. One reason above all others, in fact, we want to see the Harbinger and ask him our one permitted question. 
I'll regret my first ride on the bus for the rest of my days. Although I was drunk, I had enough wits about me to see off the various tricks used by the ghouls. I wasn't prepared for him, though. The Harbinger is the only passenger who isn't already riding on the bus when you first get on. He comes on later after you've negotiated your way through the ghostly entities and you think the worst is behind you. The first thing you'll notice is the burning cross mounted on top of the darkened hillside overlooking the road on the left-hand side. I remember the first time I saw that foreboding symbol and the immense fear I felt, as I knew something bad was coming. A moment after I spotted the cross, I was shocked to see the bus was slowing down, pulling over to the side of the road and parking up in a lay-by. Next, the driver operated the swing door at the front of the bus, opening it to whatever lay on the other side. The terror almost overwhelmed me as I thought of the horrors that lurked within the Shadowlands, of the creatures and demons hiding in the haunted woods and hillsides. I recalled looking to the other passengers, somehow hoping that these devious spirits would offer me some protection from whatever was coming. But instead, their heads were down, and they all maintained a solemn silence. Realizing I was on my own, I glanced out the window to witness a sight which chilled me to my very bones. There was a small, covered shelter by the roadside, almost covered by overgrown vegetation and only just visible in the dim light. And within this seemingly abandoned bus shelter stood a tall, hooded figure, a sinister individual with his face covered and considerable frame hidden underneath a long and dark robe. The mystery man remained still and silent, although I soon spotted the animal by his side, which was a large black dog that snarled aggressively through a snout filled with razor-sharp teeth. As it glared at me with hungry and predatory eyes, only a thin glass pane separating me from him. I imagined the hound breaking loose, ascending the steps and charging down the aisle before burying its razor-sharp fangs into my soft flesh. Thankfully, the dog's master retained control of his beast. Although I was far from danger, I also noticed how hot and stifling it suddenly became, as an almost unbearable wave of heat hit me. Meanwhile, the bus remained parked for what seemed like an eternity, its door ajar as the driver waited to see whether his passenger would get on or not. Now I've since learned that the hooded figure we call the Harbinger will do one of two things at this point. Either he'll remain rooted to the spot until eventually the driver will say something like, well, not tonight then, before he closes the door and drives on. From what I've been able to gather from both my own experiences and those of my contemporaries, this is what happens most of the time. Two times out of three, the Harbinger won't step out from the bus shelter, and that will be the end of it. But sometimes he'll step forward, marching through the mud in his heavy boots while dragging his hellhound along on a leash, and he'll come aboard the bus, prompting the driver to say, Good evening, sir. I trust you'll have a pleasant journey. The harbinger will not answer. Instead, gliding down the aisle with his faithful mutt following behind him, he'll take a seat near the front of the bus, pulling down his hood to reveal what lies underneath. To this day, I can't fully explain what I saw in that terrifying moment. It seemed like there was only a dark void where his face should be, with two burning orbs instead of eyes. He had no mouth that I could see, and so by rights he shouldn't have been able to speak, and yet he did. Calling out to me in a booming, godlike voice which echoed through the hollow interior of the bus. Come to me, mortal child, he ordered. Come, sit with me, so we may speak. As you can imagine, I was utterly terrified in this moment. So much so that I thought I might pass out. But for reasons I can't explain, I obeyed the harbinger's orders, feeling like I physically could not resist him, and as my legs, as if my legs were no longer under my control. 
I remember looking to the other passengers as I walked down the aisle, hoping that one of them could help me, but each of the four kept their heads down as they muttered in unison, reciting a prayer in a language that I could not understand. It became obvious that the Harbinger held power over these lost souls, and they were all trapped under his spell. Perhaps they were once like us, falling victim to the phantom bus and the Harbinger's godlike powers. However, in any event, they offered me no assistance in that fateful moment, and I soon realized I was completely at the Harbinger's mercy. I involuntarily took a seat in the road directly behind the Harbinger. His head turned in an unnatural way to face me as his dog snarled aggressively in my direction, but, thankfully, resisted the urge to bite me in the leg. I can't really describe how the Harbinger smelt, other than to say he stank of death. The fiery orbs he had instead of eyes stared right at me, and I couldn't look away. No matter how much I tried, I felt like I was on fire, my soul burning under his hateful glare. In my state of abject terror, I imagined what this monster might do to me. I reckoned he could kill me with ease, but this was the least of my fears. Instead, I believed, I may become like the others, another anonymous lost soul riding this damned bus for all eternity. In any event, I was powerless to do anything in that moment other than remain frozen to my seat, waiting for the Harbinger to speak. Despite his absence of eyes, somehow I could tell he was looking down at me, that he considered me with total contempt like I was something he'd stepped in. To this day, I don't know whether he was speaking out loud or if his booming voice was only in my head. Either way, I found myself totally transfixed as he spoke his words. I see another mere mortal has found its way into my realm, he began. I assumed he was referring to me. I'll confess to having little time for your contemptible and weak race. Nevertheless, I must respect the bravery of the odd individual such as yourself. Now many have the courage, not many have the courage to come to this dark place, and for this reason I will grant you safe passage, and I will answer you one question. Ask me what you will, mere mortal, and I will impart to you my infinite knowledge. Now this is a moment I've replayed over and over and over in my mind for years. I could have asked the Harbinger anything, the winning lottery numbers, who killed JFK, the meaning of life. He sees and knows everything, and the possibilities are limitless. One of the guys in our forum asked the Harbinger how he would die, and he was told that his vices would kill him within six months. The guy was an addict, but he laughed off the Harbinger's warnings and continued using. Six months later, he died of an overdose. And then there was a young woman at the time of her encounter with the Harbinger was stuck in an abusive and controlling relationship. She asked the entity what would happen if she stayed with her asshole boyfriend. Well, she was told that her life would end unless she broke off the relationship. This proved to be the motivation she needed to leave him, and about a year later the bastard was arrested for murdering a different girl and ultimately sentenced to life in prison. But of course I didn't know any of this at the time. I felt nothing but pure terror as I sat frozen to my seat, quaking in my boots as the harbinger glared down upon me with disgust. In that chilling moment I could only think of one question to ask, which I stuttered from my trembling lips. What are you? I swore I could hear the creature scoff with contempt before he gave his answer. My poor child, he bellowed. Alas, you hum humans will never fully comprehend what I am and what I represent. Nevertheless, I owe you an answer, and so I shall explain in the simplest of terms. I am the past, I am the present, and the future. I see all from where I stand, and yet I have sworn not to intervene in the mortal realm. He paused momentarily, turning his burning orbs towards the darkened landscape outside the window. The world you see before me is my kingdom. 
my domain, I offer sanctuary to those who have nowhere else to go, giving a home to those lost souls trapped between the mortal and eternal realms. Perhaps you will come here one day and become a permanent resident of my dark realm. Or perhaps not. You could have inquired after your ultimate fate, of course, but you chose not to do so. But I have answered your one permitted question and fulfilled my obligation, and now, my child, I will bear you farewell. With that, he rose from his chair and summoned his hound, gliding down the aisle as he made for the exit. I was flabbergasted and in a state of shock. I still had so many questions to ask, and I opened my mouth without thinking. Wait! I called after him, instantly regretting my decision to speak. The harbinger, harbinger turned sharply, his orb-like eyes burning ever fiercer, his hound growling as it bared its sharp teeth, pulling on its lead as it tried to get at me. When the harbinger spoke again, his tone became angry and threatening. Heed my warning, fool. I have tolerated your presence in my realm thus far, but don't test my patience. I can inflict pain upon you, which goes beyond your worst nightmares, and I will not hesitate to do so if you break my rules again. I felt all the blood drain from my face, and my whole body shook uncontrollably as sheer terror overcame me. Needless to say, I did not utter another word. Instead, I watched on in shocked awe as the harbinger glided down the aisle, dragging his snarling hellhound with him. The driver brought the bus to a slow halt to allow the godlike creature to disembark. I began to feel pangs of relief as I thought my ordeal was nearly over. But there was one last twist to this macabre episode. As the harbinger stepped off the coach, my fellow passengers suddenly shot up from their seats, all simultaneously turning in my direction. To my horror, I saw how their eyes had turned jet black and their mouths were open wide, revealing gaping black holes. It seemed like they were all trying to scream, and yet no sound was emitted. And then I saw what was lurking in the darkened woods on either side of the road. Hundreds of fiery red eyes emerging from the tree line, belonging to unholy beasts that howled like wolves in the night. Everyone focused upon our bus. I screamed out in terror, fearing that the harbinger had changed his mind and was summoning his hellish minions to tear me into pieces. The howling rapidly increased in volume, becoming so loud that I was near deafened. What happened next remained something of a blur in my memory. I recall the horrific din and the pressure built up inside my head until I thought my skull would explode. Then suddenly there was a blinding flash of light, forcing me to hide my eyes underneath my hands. A moment later I opened my eyes again, only to discover that the beasts had vanished, as had my ghoulish fellow passengers. I was alone. Inside the bus, just me and the driver as we continued down that lonely stretch of road. I have very little recollection of the rest of the journey. I don't think it was much longer, though, before we left the Dark Realm and returned to the city streets I knew and recognized. When we arrived on my home street, I could not believe it, thinking this was another trick. I sat still in my seat for some time until eventually I needed to be prompted by the driver who called out to me saying, You're stopped, buddy. Come on. Can't wait here all night. With some trepidation, I walked down the aisle and stepped off the bus, feeling the cool air against my skin as I returned to the realm of the living. I recall the driver wishing me good night and saying he would see me again soon before he drove away. So that's my story, but it's not quite the end of it. You may well ask why I didn't abandon my obsession with the phantom bus after my terrifying encounter. Well, for a long time I did. But... In the end, my curiosity got the better of me. I don't like the uncertainty of life of not knowing what lays ahead. I used to think that's just the way it is, but now I know better. The Harbinger's out there, and he can provide the answers I need. 
I won't waste an opportunity a second time. For years I have chased the bus, and I've caught it a further two times. On both occasions I boarded, and avoided the trap set by the ghoulish passengers. In both times I waited for the harbinger to board, but he would not move from his shelter, and so my hopes were frustrated. It's been extremely disheartening, however I will not give up. Tonight I will seek out the bus once again, and I'll keep doing so until the harbinger answers my call. I know the risks. One night, night I may board the phantom coach and never make it home, but nevertheless I need to do this. I must know the truth, no matter what the cost. So now if you'll excuse me, I've got a fucking bus to catch. Oh, man, that was a good one. It does sound an awful lot like riding the bus in Los Angeles, but uh, god damn, that was a good story. This wound liquor, quite an author. Fuck yeah. Um, man, what a doozy. What happens when five eligible bachelors welcome a little girl into their lives? Hey, it's my turn in the bathroom. Non-stop hilarity. My Five Uncles, the sitcom with a lot of heart. Hey, Gina, welcome to your new home. You sleep in there, and we all sleep in here. Ugh, whatever. Does anyone have something to smoke? <laughs> it's the show that shows family values exist, even in unconventional families. Oh, what are you guys doing in there? We're just flossing here. here. It's a brand new show taking hilarious comedy in a whole new funny direction. I don't get it. Why don't any of you guys have a steady girlfriend? And they learn some lessons about life and love along the way. Come on, guys. Group hug. I'm an emotionally abused orphan. Can I get in on any of these group hugs? No, you stupid bitch. My Five Uncles, Thursday nights on LSBC. Your home is your castle. And like most castles, there's always the worrisome, less fortunate trying to storm the gates. No longer. At Executive Intruder Extermination Service, we'll ensure that you'll live in a fortress and live your life worry-free. With my vindictive and backstabbing personality, I always knew I'd be successful. But there's a price to pay. Money gives me freedom. Freedom to be scared of things that normal people don't have to worry about. When it comes to people trying to get a buck off me or come knocking, I turn to outside help. Your home will be surrounded by only the best security equipment. Razor wire, Dobermans, Landmines night vision, and motion sensors. And if a stranger or unwanted relative should make it inside, all of your doors will be wired with bombs. But what about when my children need to go to school? Your children will be equipped with bulletproof vests, and depending on if they attend public school, stun guns and mace. When you're successful, nobody wants to be bothered. I'll slaughter anyone who even thinks of harming my family with Executive Intruder Extermination Service. They do it for me. Call today for your free home demonstration. The world is a dangerous place. For you, it doesn't have to be. All right, our last story of the day is, it's titled, Kiwapo Shop of Horrors by JVLP. There's an antique shop somewhere in the heart of Kiwapo, known only to a few and appears only to those with a desperate need for something. It is said that inside you'll find things that will grant your desires, if you're willing to take the risk. The shop most often presents itself as a two-story building with architectural details similar to the mid-18th century Spanish colonial-style houses. At the front is a double-arched door made from what seems to be Nara wood, engraved with grapes and vines. Just above its iron handlebars are two black, are two black head-shaped buttons, an angel's face on the right and a devil's face on the left. Standing at the front of the establishment will give you compelling desire to go inside, and it's as if your body moves on its own to try and open the door. 
Entry requires pressing the two buttons simultaneously. Upon pressing the buttons, you'll feel a little prick on your finger, as entrance to the establishment must be paid for with blood. Once the offering has been made, push the doors inward to go inside. You'll be met with a dark hallway, with the end of the passage barely visible from the entrance. Walk straight towards the light, and whatever you hear, do not stray from your path. Upon arriving at the shop, you'll immediately see the reception desk on your right. Behind the desk is a man wearing a pure white suit, with his back facing the reception. He will not respond to you, not respond to any statement apart from inquiries on how to use the items of the shop. At the top of the desk is a guest logbook. You'll see that your name and guest number have already been written in the logbook using the blood from your finger. Press on the space after your name to register your fingerprint. After this is done, the wound, blood, and any pain on your fingers will disappear. Now you're free to use or borrow any item from the shop. On the left side of the shop, you'll find an elegant mirror hanging on the sturdy adobe wall. The mirror's glass on the center, the size of a two-year-old child, is enclosed in wood from an old Nara tree, with engravings of angels on the right and demons on the left. Check the time on the clock above the reception, where the owner always stands facing the wall. Wait until the clock strikes 3 a.m. At exactly 3 a.m., face the mirror. On the bottom part, you'll see a Latin phrase engraved on a gold scroll. Recite the phrase three times while facing the mirror. After reciting the phrase, breathe on the mirror until it fogs up. Make sure the fog covers your face completely. Take three steps back. Close your eyes and count to 100. Never open your eyes until you finish counting, even if you feel or hear something. After you finish counting, open your eyes. The fog on the mirror will be gone, and on your reflection you'll see things related to your future. Your destined partner, financial status, upcoming deals, or even the time and instant of your death. The vision will stay for three minutes. Once the vision disappears, turn your back on the mirror and count backwards from a hundred. Do not take a glimpse behind, even if someone calls you from the mirror. After you finish counting, leave the shop immediately after using the mirror. There are some instances that the fog doesn't disappear after counting to 100. If this happens, break the mirror immediately and head to the reception. You'll see a silver coin on top of the reception desk. Take the coin and apologize to the owner for the mirror and thank him for the coin. Leave as soon as possible. You won't be alone once you leave the shop, so never lose that silver coin. On the left corner of the room, you'll see a dress hanging from a wooden hanger. It's hard to miss the dress. It's made with silky cloth as black as night and gold adoration sparkling like the stars in the sky. The dress will fit you perfectly regardless of your body frame. Oh boy! Can't wait. Moreover, the dress transforms into whatever type of garment you desire at the moment of donning it. Color and adoration stay the same. The dress is not for sale. However, the shop lends it to those who desire for one day only. Go to the reception and knock three times. Tell the owner that you borrowed the dress and leave the shop. No payment will be taken, but be sure to return the dress by 3 a.m. the next day. Do not look back at the shop or the shop owner. The dress can be worn at, worn at any time of the day, and people will always be mesmerized by its elegance. They will always see you as a gorgeous person, regardless of your appearance. Any stain or damage on the dress will be repaired in no time. As per agreement, the dress needs to be returned by 3 a.m. the next day. Upon failing to do so, the dress will disappear. An old, ghastly lady will greet you wearing the same dress, only this time the dress is worn out and tattered. The lady will slowly drain your youthfulness away, restoring the dress to its former beauty. 
At the center of the shop, an elegant bamboo organ is displayed. The organ is made from lacquered bamboo pipes and stands at 3 meters by 2 meters. The keys, however, are made from a material similar to ivory. All of the keys are arranged as to how a typical organ should be, and all the keys look typical except for two of them. One of which is heavily worn and dusty, while the other one always looks new and shiny. Of all the keys on the organ, three of them are off in their tuning. One of them is the dusty key, the other being the shiny key, and for the third key you'll have to find it by playing the organ. Play these keys in the right note and a door will open in the back of the shop. Head for the door, close your eyes and enter. Once inside the room, gently open your eyes. You should still hear the organ playing by this time. Inside the room you'll either find yourself, on your sweetest memory, able to experience the sweet bliss of that moment for one more time, or you'll be in an important turning point in your life sometime in the future, gaining insight to consequences of the choices you make. You can stay inside the room for as long as the organ is playing. Once it stops, however, you must immediately head for the door to go out. It's important to keep track of where the door is at all times. There are instances, however, where the room will show you nothing but a dark, cold room upon entering. If this happens, go out of the room and leave the shop immediately. You won't be able to look behind you anymore, for they are already following you. At the back of the shop, near where the door that opens using the organ sits, you'll see an old wooden chest made out from a 700-year-old acacia tree. The chest is adorned with golden vines on the side as well as a golden lock. At the top of the chest is a hole about one centimeter in diameter. One of the most sought-after items in the shop. This was once owned by a sly and greedy aristocrat during the 17th century who made a deal with the devil. The chest is said to be filled with gold coins once every full moon. To fill the chest with gold, you must follow a series of steps. Do the steps right, and the chest will open itself, and you are free to take the coins. Miss one of the steps, and the chest remains locked until the next full moon, and it will take from you an equivalent compensation for all the coins inside. First, you'll have to bring the chest on an area where it will be exposed to the moonlight. Moonlight must touch all but one side of the chest, which will then cast a shadow. This will be the gate from which the gold will be delivered. This must be done on a full moon. Now wait until midnight for the next step. As soon as the clock strikes, strikes midnight, do a small cut on yourself and put a drop of blood on the hole above the chest. An inscription will appear at the top of the chest. Recite the phrase seven times continuously, and upon finishing the chant, the chest will be unlocked, but do not open it yet. Lift the chest. You should already feel the chest slowly getting heavier. Now you have seven minutes to move the chest out of the moonlight. You must be careful not to drop or open the chest. No moonlight must touch the chest after seven minutes. After you have successfully moved the chest, you can now open it. The chest should be filled with gold coins. However, things don't end there. The aristocrat had a habit of marking his belongings. All the gold coins in the chest bear the numbers 777, except for one bearing the number 666. You must find that coin within seven minutes and throw it. The aristocrat will come for the coin. Be careful not to look at him, or he will kill you for stealing his shit. If you fail to find the coin, leave the chest and run. You better pray that he doesn't catch you before the next full moon. A few steps from the reception on the right of the shop, you'll find a black Polaroid camera. Beside it, you'll find a small box of paper sheets for the camera. There are a total of 13 inside. 12 with the white border and a black center, and 1 with a black border and white center. If you want to use the camera, there are a few things you should remember. Pictures taken from this camera show the future of your subject, be it a person, thing, or scenery. 
You must write the specific date and time of the future you want to see on the sheets with the white border. The pictures taken using this sheet would display the scene of the exact date and time indicated on the sheet. In the case of a person or object, it will be its condition. You won't be able to write anything on the sheets with the black border, so before taking, taking a picture, all sheets must be inside the camera. You can only write on one sheet at a time. The dated sheet should be the first sheet on the arrangement. The sheet with the black border should be the last sheet in the sequence. After taking a picture, remove all the sheets from the camera. Jesus Christ, this guy has no idea how a Polaroid camera works. Only after removing the sheets can you write up another date on them. Upon using all 12 sheets with the white border, you must return the camera to the shop before midnight. Failing to do so will force the camera to take the 13th picture. Make sure to avoid all means of taking the 13th shot or accidentally using the sheet with the black border. Picture taken on this sheet will be a scenario of your death after the picture was taken. One more thing, never take a picture that shows your reflection. The owner of the camera doesn't like to be seen, and he won't like you to see him either. P.S. This was written both as a guide and a warning for future guests. Try your best to stay alive, or at least stay human. Yeah, great. Woo. That's a, quite a bummer after the wound liquor sagas. But anyway, on that sour note... Thank you guys very much for tuning in to another episode of the Halloween special of the Anthology of Horror podcast series. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so by going to Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. Please make sure to rate the show five stars on the iTunes store. It helps with the algorithm, and I would greatly appreciate it. It doesn't cost any money. It just takes a few minutes of your time, so please get on that. All right, guys, until next time, stay spooky.